Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Also, say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook and share our show. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause what you're doing and give us a five-star review. And our offer still remains. We will talk about whatever you want us to talk about or answer any question so long as you ask it in a five-star five star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. At or Apple. if you can figure out how to say, how to give us five tars, you'll, you'll get like twice as much talk on the podcast. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Christopher. Just in case my insecurity wasn't... Uh, wasn't doing well <laughs> enough today. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at, at @clergyway and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. But even better than the two of us, we have a wonderful guest. Christopher, would you introduce our guest for us? Absolutely. Today our guest is Father Harrison Air. Do I even Ooh. need to introduce him? I mean, he's a big deal. You all know him anyway. He's a Canadian priest. He is a certified big deal on Twitter. I think he has over 20,000 followers on Twitter.com. He sold so many indulgences that he's sure to receive Defender of the Faith, Faith title. He has a podcast. It's not as good as ours, but it's up there. It's pretty good. He's author of a recent book, Finding Christ in the Crisis, a book written in response to his beloved Canucks Stanley Cup drought. <laughs> <laughs> i apologize i'm a little punchy today you know people people invaded our capital i know this may not bother you it wasn't uh, even the brits this time no but people invaded our capital or the canadians or the canadians so i'm trying to cope as best i can harrison welcome back thanks for having yes, me on this is why the reason really reason you want me on is you know i'm gonna hit that rt button on Twitter, we'll get more people to listen, right? That that's that's the real reason. No, it's actually it's great to be it's great to be back with you guys. I always enjoy the the uh, conversation, and really, actually, the book wasn't really written in response uh, to the Canucks drought. It was written in response to knowing Chris. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's, that's Chris, pretty good. Chris is there in crisis, right? I mean, <laughs> I didn't Christ in the crisis, but uh, the editors took that out, you know. <laughs> No, but yeah, it's it's a book he wrote in response, of course, to the global pandemic that, that we're going through. And we've got some new strains of the coronavirus that are a little bit scary, even as uh, we have vaccines rolling out. Uh, do, do you want to tell us a little bit about the book? How's it doing? Yeah. Like, what's, it, what's the response like? It's been pretty good. It's been, it was a little bit slower in terms of like getting it out there at the beginning. There were some 
issues in printing and stuff like that. But uh, we're already, I believe, in our second print run, which is yeah. huge. Yeah. Um, the idea is simply like we, we felt that while there was a lot of really good policy decisions going on around what we should and shouldn't be doing to help, you know, save lives. Um, the one thing we found lacking in the church was a pastoral response. Like what's, where's, what's God doing? How is God working in this at all? And so we wrote this little booklet as a means to kind of answer that question, right? So we talk about some of the issues we've seen kind of pop up in this time, which there have been a lot. Um, and we talk about, we actually use the um, exile of Israel as a kind of lens to see what God's doing in the church. If the church is the new Israel, then what God does in Israel kind of can interpret for us this moment. And then, you know, talking about some of the things God's asking us to rediscover, like the nature and beauty of our baptism. Um, yes, we are separated from some sacraments of the life of the church, but God's grace doesn't stop working despite that, right? Um, and, uh, and then we also end our book by using um, St. Damien Malachi as uh, uh, the great saint who worked amongst the lepers as a great example of someone who can help inspire us in this time. So it was just a little book. It's really cheap. You can get it on Amazon, osvcatholicbookstore.com if you want to buy them in bulk. And uh, there's like two bucks a book. It's the idea is to get them out into as many hands as possible to kind of bring people some, uh, some solace and hope in this time. Nice. We invite you to talk about your book and you say, buy, buy a whole case. <laughs> yeah, like, like, no, don't, don't buy one, buy a whole case. Okay. Hey, That's listen, I have friends who have ordered a hundred. I know, I know. I know. Great. <laughs> Following the example <laughs> of you know the one exile. Of She's like, yes. <laughs> Following uh, the example oh. of the exile, you were asking the Egyptians for their silverware. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, exactly, but, Har exactly. but Harrison, yeah. you are already if not working on another book, at least in your mind, had another another two books. Uh, would you say a little bit about that before we move on to the gospel? So uh, the second book, um, actually, okay, this will be uh, this will be a public first. Um, so we just came up on the title. It's called Mysterion, the mm. revelatory power of the sacramental worldview, Ooh. and oh, it's like going to be with. Yeah. Yeah. That's the title the sisters came up with in their edit, in their meetings. I'm like, yes, this is a great title. And uh, so it's a book about the sacramental worldview and why um, sacramentality goes deeper than just the seven sacraments, that it's a way of living as a Christian. And it deals with the question of modernism and stuff like that. And then uh, the second book is I'm working on right now, writing about 500 words a day is uh, kind of a layperson's introduction to Vatican II. What the mm. council taught, because we hear a lot about in Catholic circles and there's a lot of debates around it still. And um, just to help, I think a lot of people don't, you know, the documents would be a lot for someone to kind of dive into right away. So mm -hmm. this is meant to be like a little lay introductory to that, to that. So I'm working on that and my doctoral thesis and being a pastor and all that fun <laughs> stuff. Well, and what's interesting about Vatican II, my understanding is you're, you're quite the defender of it. Um, yeah. And, this and is I the think, Pope Benedict tap dance. And I think you right. ought to. I think you ought to be like that. That is the essence of being a Roman Catholic is like, you can't just be like, Oh, well, I like, I like this. I don't like that. Like that's, we, I mean, we label other things as, as being cafeteria Catholic. Like I'll have some mm -hmm. of this and some of that, but like, mm -hmm. you can't just say, Oh, well, this council's dumb because you I don't like some of the reforms. And smile. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Harrison would not refer to it as a crab sandwich, but I mean, yeah, but I mean, and, the, and it's like, it's a council, right? So it, it's, it's got, listen, even at it as a council, there's different magisterial levels of different documents, right? And how you respond to that is different. Like the dogmatic constitutions are pretty straightforward. You really can't deviate from them. And they don't really say much. They, they, if, if they don't really change, they actually don't change anything. They're just rediscovering some of the ancient faith, especially around the fathers, around the ideas of revelation and the church, especially. And, um, but there's other documents that are more instruct, more of an instructionary basis, right? Or they're just trying to give more instruction or something like that. And, 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 you know, you want to listen to them, but the church even allows for different levels where you're like, okay, if I'm going to disagree with it, how am I going to do that? Right. Sure. Uh, but, but, um, but you're right. But in the end, it's a valid council. The bishops of the world were there. They voted. This was not some, you know, deep church weird the, the, thing that the, the Roman bishops were there. Yes, the, sorry, the Roman <laughs> bishops. Sorry, and well, and the Eastern and the Eastern bishops in communion with us, um, <laughs> and uh, and all the other. Well, there's it's 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 a council of the church, so there would be like I think there's 26 rights. So it's not just the Roman. It actually wouldn't just be the Roman. It would be like a bunch of. I think although I think I think the Archbishop of Canterbury was there as an observer. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think there was a lot of hacky, happy ecumenism around it. Yeah, and and yeah. it was, I think, the first council that, whose goal was to kind of establish, mm. be, be beginning to establish ecumenical networks. And I think it was effective that way. I mean, Absolutely. Vatican II affected us as much as it infected, not infected, mm -hmm. yeah. as it affected you. <laughs> right. I mean, every every single you know versus populum, um, you know, Holy Communion that we celebrate, we we got that from you. So well, but guess what? That, here, okay, here's the weird thing though. There's nothing in the documents that say versus populum. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that's that would be weird, a really interesting discussion for another. That's time, that's but. the yeah. That's the weird part. Is like yeah, that's not even in there. It it yeah, it's not even in there. It's it's. <laughs> But it was in the air. Man. It was certainly in the air. It was in the right? air. But... We're all going to face each other and hold hands. And oh yeah, and I mean <laughs> definitely. I don't think the council foresaw the seventies. Mm. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I think that was definitely something that uh, halted. Its, well, I its think I, th I think what's interesting in an ancient institution like the Roman Catholic Church is is there being a reflexive love of old things and a rejection of you know any sort of innovation, whatever it be, uh, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so mm -hmm. I, I think that makes Vatican II an easy punching bag for people who just don't like innovation or new things. And yeah. while while there are some real issues that Vat that the church had to uh, to address, and here I am talk, like talking about the Roman church as if right. I know, <laughs> like. But um, yeah. Yeah, but this ripples through our parishes too. Like sure. the yeah. same battles are not battles, yeah. but the same fault yeah. lines and tensions exist sure. in my parish too, as yeah. a result of Vatican too. And, and, and I think my big beef, and was why I'm a big defender of it, is a lot of people haven't actually read the documents, right. don't actually understand <laughs> what they don't recognize. Everyone's like, "Oh, Vatican II is modernism." Like, no, no, no. <laughs> the theology of Vatican II is the antidote to modernism. Mm. If you understand modernism, mm. like my definition of modernism right. is the denial of mediation that God mm. can't work through things, and that uh, the Enlightenment idea that the self is separate from the body, almost right. Like there is like so the body isn't the part of the true self, and so like you, the self can't. Uh, the body isn't really a means of mediating us to each other. Like there's all like there's all ripple effects of the denial of mediation. Well, the whole point of the council is to say no. Sacramental ontology, like sacramentality, is actually at the heart of the Christian life, and it needs to be the heart of what we do for everything. And that really is the antidote to um, 
a lot of modernism. Modern issues. Yeah. yeah. So modernism itself, but the problem is that hasn't really gotten gained hold yet. It's slowly gaining hold little bits. That's actually this is part of the reason I wrote that. This is actually kind of at the heart of why I've written both these books is like to say this is the way a Catholic look at the world. It, it looks at it liturgically. It sees signs and symbols. Like there's a lot of epistemic problems we have today too. And the Catholic sees things, uh, the Christian ought to, sorry, I'm going to be more communicable. The Christian ought to see things more in a, uh, that there are signs that things aren't just pure matter, but that they actually mean more than what they are in themselves. Like Pope Benedict uses this image of a meal. It's not just, it's not just nourishment, but it's the sharing of life with people. It actually has a great, like a Christmas dinner has greater value in it than just mere nutrition. It's more than just the matter of what you're consuming. And that's how Christian, and I mean, listen, we know this intuitively, even as human mm -hmm. beings, it's just, we need to kind of rediscover that. Yeah. Uh, the, the profound unsacramentality, can I say that? Unsacramentality, yeah. is it? Yeah, um, sure. of, of kind of the default American Protestant worldview um, makes getting American Protestants to come to church almost impossible because right. I think they don't actually believe that God is there. Yeah. Um, that things aren't shot through with grace and God's presence and God's mediating presence. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and, and I, I find this sadly in conversations I have with people that I deeply love who kind of have a really kind of low standard evangelical American mm -hmm. uh, understanding. And I think a lot of Ameri American evangelical men um, go to church so that their families here, like they don't need it, but so that their families learn the Bible or something like this. Right. Um, whereas if we believe that God was there for us, mediating for us <laughs> mm -hmm. in, in, in his body, in his blood, <laughs> in his word, in the fellowship, yeah. actually they're actually present. And I think is that, is that kind of what you're getting at when you say the sacrament? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. And this is something like uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium talks about this in, in the council, right? It talks about how God's presence is in different ways, right? It is their absolute sacrament. Like there is a real presence in the Eucharist and stuff like that for us, right? And but he's also there in the word proclaimed. Like they're like, so I always look at it like when I'm proclaiming the gospel, it's it's as a priest, as someone ordained, Christ is in a mysterious way making us almost like present to what is being proclaimed mm. in mystery, right? Yes. That's beautiful, that's powerful, that's exciting. But we, our modern worldview is just so against the wall at that being impossible. And we see that as magic almost. It right. is not, it says, it really isn't. It's just, we have to kind of rediscover a whole way of being, right? I mean, like even the way a lot of Christians who are sacramental Christians, even the way they approach the sacraments often is in a very modern way. The way we view matter, for example, is very enlightenment based. And so like, for example, you'll see it with some Catholics, like this idea is like proximity, proximity to the Eucharist is, is in a very modern sense of like distance and time and place like, and, and stuff like that. Like it's all about measurable closeness. Like Newton's gravitational laws are like in the yeah. inverse square of distance or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, that's not really a sacramental vision of this stuff, right? It's, it's something vastly different. And, and, uh, and, and so like, it just shows you though, the project we have in front of us is actually quite large because <laughs> it's really is countercultural, but not in a way of saying, you're horrible because you're not of this culture, but to say, no, we want to imbue, we want to be like 11, right? To yeah. let this kind of seep in again. Well, I am so excited um, as sort of a, kind of a, a convert to historic Christianity from just kind of like standard, standard American evangelicalism that mm -hmm. I, I get excited and I want to be bring, invite people in to a yeah. sacramental worldview, a sacramental life. So I'm very excited, Harrison, that you're doing this. Like, God cool. bless you on this project. Thanks. Good <laughs> Thanks. luck. I'm, Thank you. I'm excited and to read it. 
And Harrison, yeah, so he, he has used the word mystery a few times here, and his book is is titled Mysterion. Um, this is uh, something that the Catholics love and embrace, and it makes uh, evangelicals really nervous. And especially um, th there's this uh, reformed or Calvinist impulse um, to, to say, well, we like we want to demystify things and explain it and systematize it. Um, and because like, that's, that's a big part of being a reformed Christian is, is, is having this logical and coherent explanation of everything. Um, right. And they love writing systematic theologies. And, um, and yet uh, last week, our epistle reading was Ephesians chapter from Ephesians chapter three. Uh, oh. So the, the epiphany reading is, is Paul uses the word mystery three times, mm -hmm. um, you know, and not as something that is kept hidden, but a yes. secret thing that has been revealed yes. to the world. Right, right. Um, and and so it's it's very different. Like that's one of the many times where we have this major translation issue. Um, when we yeah. use the word mystery, it means something entirely different than um, uh, what I talked about in my sermon. Is 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 uh, our mother liked loved watching Murder She Wrote. Jessica right. Fletcher, you know that serial killer who pretended yeah. like she was solving murders, but somehow murder like everywhere she went there was a murder she killed them all uh, uh, <laughs> sorry spoiler alert um but but yeah um like we see mysteries as something that's just like hidden that, that we try to solve mm -hmm. but in fact um there have been these things that, that were previously hidden that have been revealed to us yeah i mean and this is the really cool thing like there's four i'm not going to go into all four senses but there's four <laughs> senses to the word mystery right there's there's four levels of meaning to it and i mean and one of the cool things is it's saint jerome who translates the greek word mysterion as sacramentum in latin yes mm. right mm. which is yeah. really cool right so it's this idea that something is made visible it is revealed but it's always something that you can it's not it's not a, a mystery as in it's something that needs to be figured out, but it's something right. I always go deeper into, right? Yes. If God yeah. is true mystery, it's not that he's hidden and obscure, but rather he's, he is a life that I always enter more deeply into, mm. right? He is someone like, so I'm, I can never fully comprehend God, even in heaven, I can't. Mm. The, like, so like Gregory of Nyssa, for example, loves to talk about this kind of, this always deepening knowledge and eternity of God because God's mm -hmm. infinite. So heaven can't be boring. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with the Christian worldview. Like even the person of Jesus, he's fully God and fully man um, in one person, right? Two natures, one person, but this divinity reveals itself through the humanity. But so you meditate on what is made present to us visibly in his humanity to point towards the invisible divinity, but that's never, it's never um, um, exhausted. It can't be. Right. There's always a deeper mystery. It's why it's how Catholics understand the idea of tradition, for example. Right. It's 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 the word is is there in the deposit of faith. But it's something we understand over time more and more deeply because uh, mystery is always unfolding. In Dante. It's not, it's, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I apologize. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. In uh, Dante's Paradiso, um, yeah. that is the concept at the end as he gazes at the beatific vision. Um, and it, 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 it pulsates and grows yeah. it, like the, the triune God beholding, um, yeah. God for the first time, um, having yeah. reached paradise. Um, yeah. he speaks of grasping that this will take eternity to do it. Yes. It's, I mean, he says it's, it much better. It's, it's lovely. And, and it, well, it's something C.S. Lewis talks about in, uh, the final battle. Further right? up in the and heavenly... further in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I, it is one of my favorite images. That book is a book that brought me to like a prayerful ecstasy almost. Mm right yeah. his vision of heaven was just so spot on 
it was in a literary form. It's one of the best literary examples of heaven I've ever seen. And for those who haven't read it, it like there, there is this experience where they, where they like go up into the hills and yeah. like they experience more and more the further up they get. And and like there, there's like this this repeated saying: further up and further in, as they, they as they grow to to learn and and know and appreciate the infinite God that we worship. Right. And they also have this great thing. They said, but it's weird. It's like I I have this full love of what I'm in now, and I recognize yes, this better yeah. than what I had before. But it doesn't diminish right. or remove what I've experienced before. It it is so paradoxical in a beautiful way. Well, it and just, that's, ah. it's lovely if you pair that with his depiction of heaven as well in the Great Divorce. Yeah. In which heaven is more real than the souls that arrive there. So the right. grass is painful to walk on because <laughs> exactly. the grass yeah. is more real than we are. Yeah. Right. So there's that sense of when we will come into touch with the source of our being, the source of all being for the first time ever, it'll be the realest thing that will have ever happened. And it will take eternity for us to continue to become real as we are shadows and walking in the shadowlands currently. And it's, it's interesting because like Lewis really had this ability to appreciate something the, the early Christians and the medievals really understood well, that the spiritual has how I want to make sure I put this in such a way that's not like like Manichaean, but like the spiritual is more real, right? It is the realest thing, mm. but not in like competition with our embodiedness or anything like that. But it's just to say like uh, that is, that's what's got the real hep, uh, uh, hep, uh, what's the word for like uh, like heftiness of reality. Um, we we don't see that way anymore, right? Only what's in front of us is what's really truly real, and it is real but it's even more real when it's imbued with this kind of spiritual worldview that sees that spirit, the spiritual does work in the material and it's like this beautiful life. That's always, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just Lewis had that ability to see the realness of the spiritual. So the way that our catechism and our prayer book in Anglicanism um, teaches what a sacrament is, um, an outward and visible sign of an inward invisible grace yeah and uh we only <laughs> that's exactly have, ours too <laughs> is it we really? only have yeah, two yeah, yeah. um one is holy communion and the other is baptism speaking yeah. of baptism <laughs> transition we should magnificent talk about... kirk <laughs> that was like <laughs> c plus at best we should talk about this sunday's lesson and the baptism of our lord This week's gospel lesson comes from Mark chapter one, verses seven through 11. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. 
you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks yeah. be to God. Harrison, um, yeah. would you give us some of your thoughts on this gospel text? Yeah, so uh, it's always really beautiful how the, the church's liturgy kind of, like at least for North America, where I think for most of us, we tend to celebrate Epiphany on a Sunday. Um, it you're becomes saying, kind of like, sorry? You're saying baptism of Christ on a Sunday. Or do you yeah. say... Oh, sorry, okay. sorry, Epiphany on a Sunday, but then baptism kind of falls eight days later. Yeah. So we've been yeah. kind of like in this octave of like yeah. the church's liturgy, even this whole week really still focuses on this epiphany, right? So this is, um, and it's really the end of the Chris, of the liturgically Christmas season where we now, um, Jesus enters into his public ministry, right? So the, the prayer, like all the prayers of this day that surround it, it always attaches, it always attaches, it's really a completion and also a deep mystery imbued with the Epiphany and the wedding feast at Cana, right? So baptism of the Lord, wedding feast at Cana, Epiphany are all big, three big feasts whereby Jesus reveals himself, right? The God is revealed in Christ Jesus in these three things. Uh, and so I always love this because it's, it's, it's the beginning of the public ministry. And so we kind of enter into the ordinary time where, where Jesus's ministry is, is really kind of proclaimed to us and made known to us. And so it becomes kind of this definitive, Jesus is starting his mission, right? So, you know, the first thing I always like to preach when I preach about this often is I always like to say, you know, what Jesus received in baptism is different to an extent, right? It's John's baptism. It's the baptism of repentance. It's not, uh, it's not a sacramental baptism as we understand it. Um, but at the same time, there's, um, there is this whole idea that, Jesus is, is revealed to the world. And, and it, it, like I said, it's, for Mark, this becomes the beginning of, of Jesus going out on his mission. And, and it's, so it really becomes for us as Christians, this time of like this gospel really is meant to be like a kind of a time to renew our sense of what baptism is for us. Because Jesus blesses these waters. Because Jesus enters the waters of baptism, he has now made this sacrament into something it wasn't when John baptizes, right? It's something new. It's now been imbued with, with divine life. And this is something you hear in the prayers of baptisms, etc. that because Jesus enters these waters, um, these waters now have a new life, a new meaning for us as Christians. And so the baptism of the Lord really becomes a time for us to contemplate the fact of baptism. And this gospel really becomes this idea of like throwing ourselves in the identity of the son, right? What does the father say? And this is, is a very powerful line. If you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God is revealing. He is, he's opening up the skies. Like it's a Trinitarian action, right? Father, son, Holy Spirit. Um, the, the whole Trinity is revealing themselves in this moment to the world. And so then for us as Christians now, because of our baptism, we are, we are kind of lifted up into the sun, right? Uh, baptism brings about adoption and, and stuff like this, right? So, we are really and truly in God's life now in Christ. And so the first thing is we have that identity in him. Mm. Like this is the words of the father to the son and anyone who's in the son. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, which is uh, something I'm learning more and more in pastoral ministry is something we, a lot of cat Christians just don't know how to uh, appreciate that we are loved by the father. It sounds trite and it sounds, uh, et cetera, but it's actually deeply true. Um, and a lot of Christians don't know how to um, let that like seep in. 
But because we are in the son by baptism, we're beloved by him. But then it also, this, uh, this love that we experience between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, like our tradition teaches us that baptism is, brings about the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's huge. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, but then that life, as, and this is something First John really brings about a lot, is uh, that life now is meant to reveal God to the world. God mediates his presence through his church, which is through us as Christians baptized, which means now like we receive this kind of adoption and love from the father in Christ, but now we share in Christ's mission to save the world. The church herself doesn't save, but she rather is lifted up into Christ's saving work. So Christ saves the world through the church, right? Um, through, through Christians, through baptism. We are immersed in his life and in his mission. And so the Sunday really is a reminder to then of our mission as Christians to let people know, like, not only are you loved by the father, but that there is only one way to live and that's in Christ. And, uh, and that that's offered to you in the great gift of baptism. And that great gift of baptism is given to us because Christ went, went into the waters first. So that's, those are the thoughts that kind of came across my mind uh, as I was looking over this and, it's probably going to be the direction my homily is going to go this weekend. Um, but I, yeah, we are beloved. We are beloved children in, in the sun is, is massive. And that those words are spoken to us and that that is meant to impel us on mission to make Christ saving love known to the world. Yeah. And I, I like you talk about um, the reality that most people really have an identity crisis that they believe the lies um that the devil tells them um that they are not loved that they have no worth yeah. or they also identify um find their identity in their jobs or their roles what's been yeah. said about them the abuse that's been heaped on them but it, like if we confess christ and if we are baptized um like we belong to him and we receive a new identity and and um and that's exactly what we're seeing here when Christ enters the water. Um, it's people ask, like, why did Jesus uh, need to be baptized? Well, he didn't. <laughs> he like he did not require bapt about John's baptism of repentance. Right. So you think back to to these days. Um, we've been talking about this. Uh, I think in Advent that we. we we talked about um, John's baptism of repentance, how it's different from a Christian baptism, um, and uh, that, that it was preparing people for the one that was to come. But like Jesus had no need of repentance because he was without sin. Mm -hmm. So as Jesus, you know, stripped off his clothes and stood in line with all of Judea and Jerusalem and, and like all these people that came out to be baptized in this baptism of repentance. And as Jesus got in line with them, that was him identifying with us saying like mm -hmm. i am living life um as one of you i not only did i take on flesh but but like what i do like represents you though i am in no need of repenting um this is him identifying with you um because like that's important in this great exchange that like we receive christ's righteousness and he mm -hmm. takes on our sin and he took that mm -hmm. on the cross like this is the beginning of that obedience of his life of him i not, not just identifying with, with us by taking on flesh but then living this sinless life um that is credited to us and so because of that because he's identifying with us and he is living this righteousness that is a, that is uh 
that, that is a get free gift for us. Um, when in fact, Jesus hears you are my beloved son, Harrison, you are right on. When he hears that, that is for us too, because yeah. we are identified with him in our yeah. baptism, that we are united yeah. with him. And, and that is a powerful thing to tell people to say, like, listen, when, when the, the heavens break open, and I mean, this, this verb that Mark uses is a profound uh, verb of that. Yeah. It's, it's not it's just like, like this. Yeah, heavens are yeah. ripped open and the voice of God comes down. And we get so another Mark in immediately. Right. The heavens yes. weren't just open. They were immediately open. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and the, the voice from heaven uh, saying, you are my beloved son. That is just as true about us as it is about Jesus Christ. Oh, if we could, could if we could, Harrison, yeah. if we could convey that to, to our um, parishioners on Sunday, um, yeah. what a powerful thing to convey in, in a world that tells them, no, you're worthless. No, you are what you do. All these lies um, that, the, that they hear, that, that they are, in fact, uh, God's beloved. And so, so, so that's, that's profound. Um, I also want to, Kirk, did you have a comment on that? I had one other thing to say, and then. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I'll ask you the question later. Keep, keep your, okay. let your thought train roll on, sir. Yes. Okay. Um, also, what we have here is a parallel to Genesis 1. Um, so not only do we have the Trinity present in Genesis one, we have God speaking the world into existence. Here we have the heavens breaking open and God speaking. We have the spirit in both places in Genesis one and here. And in fact, it's interesting that the, that the revised common lectionary, which we don't use, uh, the, as Anglicans, the ACNA prayer book has a separate lectionary. And, and so our old Testament reading comes from Isaiah 62, um, in the revised common lectionary, which is used by many Protestant denominations. They have Genesis one for this reason, as this parallel, like in mm -hmm. the beginning, we see this Trinity. And then in Christ's baptism, um, we, we see the Trinity. And, um, actually I think it's Isaiah 60 that we have not Isaiah 62. Um, we have Isaiah 42 or 55. Okay. And, um, we have Isaiah 42 as well. <laughs> I, I, I want to point out this. Oh, we do? Yeah. What was I thinking? Okay. Behold Sorry. my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Right? It's, it's great. I don't know why I wrote down the other thing. Ooh, okay. Anyway, um, th this, is, this is an event that is in all the Gospels. One of the few. Uh, which, which is just a, a, a notable thing. Like we don't actually see it happen. We see John narrate it, that he saw the, the heavens um, break open and, and the spirit descend. So, th so that's one thing I, I did want to mention. Um, and uh, also I want to say this before I just invite uh, further conversation is that um, this is a common, uh, for reasons that like Harrison laid out, this is a common time for baptisms. If there are baptisms to be done, it's done on this Sunday. Uh, and if there are not baptisms, there's something cool that we do called a renewal of bapt baptismal vows. So I want to say that and invite you guys to comment on that. So I have a question about, Christopher, I'm glad you asked um, rhetorically, why does Jesus need to be baptized? And I, I don't know if you, even if that's the right question. Um, I, I don't know that he needed to be baptized, but why did he choose to be baptized? Um, so the purpose of John's baptism in the Jordan calling people out of their, their, their posh Jerusalem homes <laughs> into the desert with a crazy person, <laughs> dunking them in like filthy water. Uh, the purpose was to prepare for the coming judgment. That, that's what John says, right? Um, and yet you have Jesus gets in line. And uh, in, in other gospels, Mark recognizes, Mark has um, John the Baptist recognize um, the incongruity of this. Um, and uh, is that is that in John that uh, that that 
John the Baptist comments on it is you that should baptize me? I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, John, oh, it John, is? Okay. I th- it's an, oh, oh, John, sorry, John's gospel. I think yeah. I think it might be John's gospel. Okay, I, I didn't mean, I'm sorry. It's in one of the gospels. I don't I'm going to be Catholic. Mean... It's, it's somewhere in scripture. <laughs> so, but what I'm fascinated by is Jesus, as he does so much in his life and ministry and teaching, um, stoops to do a thing that he didn't have to, but in doing so, sanctifies it and changes it henceforth. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this preparation of judgment, which is the purpose of, of John's baptism, right? And Jesus sanctifies it by, as Harrison, you so eloquently said, <laughs> united, you have um, a manifestation of the Trinity and uniting human and divine natures um, in doing so. And then that is precisely what happens then in our baptism is you have a meeting of our nature and being touched by God's nature cannot be the same thereafter. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, just, I, I love that. I love that. It, how could baptism ever be the same <laughs> if the sinless man deigns to be condescends in the old fashioned way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Stoops down um, well, to be descend, baptized. Well, condescend means to descend with. Right. right? He's going <laughs> oh, with yes. us. He's exactly. going with us, right? It's not just, uh, yeah, he's really going with us. <laughs> I love that so much. That's so lovely. He didn't, so even the question isn't right. He didn't have to be. The question isn't, yeah. why, did, why did he have to be? Right. It's why did he choose to be? And his choosing to do so and finding it worthwhile is just a lovely thing. Well, and, and we see also, this, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. We, we see this common theme in the gospels um, because Jesus was, was perfect righteousness and sinless. Uh, that that he is unable to be tainted or or made unclean, so he can go. So any other person, were they to come in contact with someone ritually unclean, they would be unclean. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were to go uh, encounter a leper, um, they would be ritually unclean. But Jesus encounters a leper, and what happens to the leper? The leper is made clean. Jesus encounters the woman with the, of the flow of blood. Like anything Jesus encounters becomes clean. The opposite happens, right? That like we we like we encounter unclean things, we become unclean. Jesus yeah. encounters unclean things, the unclean thing is cleansed, and he becomes unclean so that they can be cleaned, right? Mm-hmm. Like like when he touches the leper, he says, "Don't tell anyone why, because if it goes out that he had touched them, he would." And then it says he couldn't go back in the city, right? he becomes, he takes on their exile for them. So that they, right, which is amazing. Like, it's just like, it shows you the depths of, of his work. Yeah. And so as Jesus enters, yes, absolutely. And as Jesus enters the baptismal waters, um, waters which we use to wash ourselves clean, um, d- the opposite happens where um, like Jesus sanctifies the waters, right? Yeah, Man. yeah exactly. Um, I was going to say something and I just totally forgot it, but um, yeah, it, it, the, oh, do someone else talk? I'll see if I can. Well, I will say this. I, uh, I might be the only person um, <laughs> in a 200 mile radius that loves uh, year B when we come to Mark. Mark <laughs> is stark. <laughs> yeah. Four verses here. Yeah. This is, this is great. And, um, but a good storyteller and Christopher, I'm glad you pointed out um, like the violent sense um, that, that isn't quite adequately conveyed. And I, of course, Christopher, you and I talked about this in December, um, the mark, uh, what's the what's the word, the Greek word that, that he uses constantly and immediately and immediately and immediately. Um, the sense of uh, drama and dramatic storyteller, we have Jesus as the action hero. 
I, I love this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, also, I also love, um, but did you think of it, Harrison? No, go ahead. Keep on going. No? I'm going okay. okay. to so, read over the passage again. A bit. Um, I love you, that you and I, uh, we, we talked about this, uh, the three of us talked about this in, in, via text, that um, in some pockets of the church, uh, Epiphany is called three three kings feast or three kings day, and in yeah. the German church, um, they don't use the word Epiphany; they use Dry Königsfest, uh, three kings day, which is which is really flattening and limiting. Um, and so uh, it, it, it as often... as the Germans are ought, ought to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but but Martin Luther uh, made made um, a, a profound point that we see uh, the true the true Dry Königsfest not at the epiphany, but here at the baptism of our Lord, the true three kings feast is the spirit descending, the father's pleasure, and the son's uh, baptism. And uh, so here's our true, epi- our true dry Königsfest. So we Amen. get to cel- celebrate th- human three kings uh, at the epiphany, but here are the, the our, our true kings. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, actually, I wonder. Okay. Well, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have another. I, I remember my point now, but I just want to quickly check one quick thing because I bet you is it, uh, is it? I forget. Is it that Sunday? For yeah. for every so for every second you waste, I'm gonna tell another Martin Luther story. Okay. No, I'm uh, kidding. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting. So like the Sunday after, it's 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 we're going back into the gospel of John right away. We're in ordinary time, but it's still Jesus revealing himself. Right. So uh, they found the Messiah, right. This one who's been revealed. So this, this kind of theme continues on, even though the season ends, but my other point now, now I remember my other point was that you brought up this idea that Jesus condescends. He, like, yeah, this idea, he doesn't have to do these things, but he chooses to do them. And in doing so sanctifies these things that aren't required of him. Yeah. I, 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 uh, and I might even bring this up into my homily a bit on the weekend, you know, is this not true of how we can cooperate in this time where, you know, in keeping our churches safe, like, like so for us, like we've been, uh, public masses have been suspended, uh, where we can't have people gather, um, you know, and I've been kind of saying to my people, like, well, no, we can sanctify this in cooperation for the common good. And our cooperation with this God will use it and does use it because we're taking an extra step, right? If they ask you to take one step, you take two steps, right? Like, like you go the extra mile because that's actually the heart of Jesus's work. Like, and, and you see beautifully in all of this, this is Philippians two, right? Jesus, who, who though he was in the form of God, like he actually says, have the same mind in you. So have Christ's mind in you, who though he was in the form of God did not deem equality with God as something to be grasped at, rather emptied himself and took on the form of a slave being known to be a human, uh, of human sent and as that they humble themselves of being accepting even death death on the cross so jesus's whole movement is a constant self-emptying a constant going above and beyond to the points of just becoming totally one with humanity to the point of even taking on our death and so this moment begins in the death of baptism where he's immersed into waters right that's the other thing about baptism this idea of immersion right it's a sign of death you stay underwater you're dead the water like you mentioned uh, Chris, around the uh, idea of the creation event, right? Well, the the waters are chaos, right? These are this. Jesus is entering into the chaos, um, but the spirit's hovering over it to bring form and life to it. This thing, um, so that it, it's Jesus's. This is the first m- movement of Jesus's crescendo towards the cross and resurrection, 
And it's just, and so you see this kind of form of his life over and over again. And we as Christians through our baptism in his church are given the mission to live this form day in and day out in everything we do. And it's that way that we make Christ visible to the world today. Amen. Well said. Uh, the, it's, it's important to point out um, that adoption, uh, I'm sorry, that baptism, um, like you said, uh, uh, the father says to the son, um, behold my son with whom I'm well pleased. Um, and uh, that's mirrored as well in our adoption um, uh, as sons of the, the father, uh, which is also uh, brings to mind um, the most powerful culture adoption that we've seen in our culture, which is Grogu by the Mandalorian. <laughs> the real reason, behold, the real reason we had Father Harrison on. So we could really have a knockdown drag out discussion about the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian is a, an American space Western television series created by John Favreau for the streaming service Disney Plus. It's the first live action series in the Star Wars franchise. Um, and it is, it begins five years after the events of the Return of the Jedi and the fall of the Galactic Empire. The Mandalorian follows the self-titled character, the Mandalorian, whose name I constantly forget. It's the Din Djarin? Something like that, yeah. Uh, who's a, I just call him Mando. Yes, that's right. He's a solitary Mandalorian bounty hunter in the outer reaches of the galaxy. He's hired by remnant Imperial forces to retrieve a, an, a, an infant Yoda, the baby Yoda, as he's become known. Later on, we find out his real name. But instead, goes on the run to protect the infant. Ladies and gentlemen, let's talk Mandalorian. Father Harrison, you've loved the Mandalorian. Tell us why. So... Uh... For a few reasons. First, they do fan service well. It's not. Yeah. It's not C three. It's not Anakin building C three PO, which was just a total joke. Uh, <laughs> it was fan service done well. Like I still remember at the end of the first season when uh, uh, I always forget his name. The moth. The moth. Um, moth Gideon. Uh, moth Gideon. Thank you. Yes. When he kind of comes out of his tie fighter with the dark saber, I was yes. like, oh, the dark saber! Oh my gosh! <laughs> Because right, I loved I, Clone Wars, I really liked, but Rebels, I loved. Like, yeah. For me, Rebe Rebels was the best Star Wars outside the original trilogy mm. before this show. And so I was like, oh, cool. They're great. And then this, I mean, admittedly, this season, they brought a lot of um, the extended universe into crossovers with the show, but they did it well. Like it was organic. It was, I mean, yeah, the one, I mean, I was very excited to see Ahsoka Tano. I felt it was a little forced, um, but I loved it because I'm like, 
I can't wait for a live action Ahsoka show. She really has become this, because, uh, you know, everyone's like, why, you know, it should be Ahsoka who goes and rescues Grogu. I'm like, no, 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 she's not a Jedi. She has no interest in Jedi ways. So she, she's on her own thing. She's on her own mission, right? Um, but it's, it, it gets the feel of the show. It, it's like, and it's, it's episodic sometimes. You don't, like, everyone, sometimes people are complaining, like the plot's not moving along with every episode. I'm like, no, right. it's not supposed to. Yeah. It's it's sometimes that's the whole point is to rediscover the beauty of a standalone adventure. Like it kind of like that's something sitcoms do well sometimes. Like like something like Brooklyn Nine Nine does that well. They have like a general arc, but not every episode always builds up to the arc intentionally. It's just these little character developments and stuff like that build up to the point where you have this kind of season conclusion where something really does develop and it does tie in the whole season, but you don't need it. And that's the whole point. You're getting this character development and stuff like that. So it's written well. They John Favreau's brilliance was bringing on Dave Filoni. Mm-hmm. Dave Filoni is was he used to work on SpongeBob SquarePants. He was hired to work at Lucas Studios um, and started working on the Clone Wars. And it turned out they didn't know this when they hired him that he's a massive Star Wars nerd. Hmm. And he know like he gets the ethos of Star Wars. Like he understands the inner workings of it. He understands the magic and mystery of the Force. He understands that the Force can't just you can't just reach your hand behind your back and suddenly a lightsaber appears like uh, you did at the last film or whatever, or, <laughs> and all this weird stuff. Like it's, 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 there are, there are machinations of the force, but it's slow, it's developed, et cetera. So it, it, it's been well-written. Um, the shows aren't too long. I mean, it, I think the, the real plus of streaming has been this ability to do as long of an episode as you need or as short as an episode you need. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, Oh, only 20 minutes. Like, but it, it's, and the adventure is great. Uh, I mean, some complaints, the other complaints I heard is, how is Boba Fett still alive? Does anyone ever die? I'm like, no, the whole, the, actually that's a big fan service. Cause there's this whole like myth around the idea that Boba Fett actually survives the Sarlacc pit because we all know Sarlacc monsters digest it takes a thousand very slowly. years to digest. Exactly, right? Uh, there's something robot chicken plays on, right? Like, uh, you know, someone falls in the Starlock pit and there's Boba Fett in there and everything. And there's someone else in there and they're just kind of hanging out. So if, if, you know, Boba Fett, if he's this great bounty hunter, of course he's going to find this way out. And, uh, but I mean, for me, honestly, and I, okay, spoiler alert. <laughs> so I'm sure at this point, everyone's seen it. The last five minutes mm. of the last episode was the best Star Wars I've seen since the original trilogy. I... Yeah. I saw the X-Swing and I'm like, oh, that's probably just like a, uh, <laughs> Republic, it's probably just like yeah. a public, a public, you know, in advance of a ship coming, right? Yeah. They're at the final minute rescue or whatever. And it's not I'm like, huh, what's going on here? And then you see a hooded figure, I'm like, no way. <laughs> and then you see the glove and the, and you see the green lights. Like, <gasps> like I, I was one o'clock in the morning. I was like, should I go to bed or should I watch this? I'm like, I'm going to watch it. I'm like, I'm screaming. I couldn't fall asleep for two hours afterwards. I'm screaming. I mean, like, I didn't, it didn't bring me to tears, but it was an incredibly emotional moment. And you saw the raw power of Luke Skywalker for the first time, right? You really saw how great of a Jedi he really is. And it tied in perfectly because everyone was like, oh, I can't believe they brought Luke Skywalker. And I'm like, no, no, he's the only Jedi. Yeah. He's the only Jedi. He has to be. Of course, it has to cross over here. I, my only shock was that they brought them together so soon. I thought it might wait another season or two, but it was one of the best Star Wars moments I've ever seen, and I just fell totally in love with it. And I just I can't wait. And then and then the I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a post credit scene for it. Everything they haven't been doing them, but I waited. Or I fast forward. I'm like, oh, there's a post credit scene. 
And sure enough, uh, you find out, and then you're let let it held in limbo for a few a few days. Is this a separate series, or is this chat? Is this season three? What is it of the new um, Bubba Fett show? And and finally, sorry, one last thing is the other thing they did well is you see the whole point is you need to kind of integrate with a known galaxy to expand storylines outside of it. And so now you've yeah. created these new characters where, yeah, you can start exploring these other areas, these other storylines, and you can start getting away from the Luke Skywalker story more and more because they've organically brought these people in. They, it, it's been just so perfectly executed, and, and the, the screen technology they're using for this has been yeah. really cool. Like, you watch it on the documentary on making the show. What are the... F- it's way better than green screen. Like, oh, yeah. it's, it's way, way better, and it's made it cheap for them to do these things, which would have been probably cost it's, prohibitive it's, to make the show it's right it's not cost prohibitive it's not cheap but yeah no it's not cheap yeah. but it's it just it and and i mean it's they been can a do massive, it yeah and it's yeah. been a massive success for disney i mean they're expecting 84 million subscribers by 2024 they're already at that mark yeah um so it's been a goal and it shows to a it it gets away from the netflix binge which is a good thing i think mm-hmm. it it was something everyone was looking forward to on fridays Mm-hmm. Which is when was the last time that happened? TGIF, really, right? exactly. Kind of like that's that's kind of what I remember. <laughs> yeah, right. But it was done well, and it also shows you. I think we're at a space now where you can actually make very good quality sci-fi for for TV or streaming. Like it's 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 revolutionary. What this show yeah. did is revolutionary, and I think it's going to. I actually think it's the death. It's going to bring about the death throes of cable television, because like all the comic book shows that are made for those they're cheaply done they're they're cheesy like i'm looking forward to wandavision coming out next week that's going to be well done and disney just man they know how to do it so those are my initial thoughts i kind of blabbed on too long there but no no that's great chris one of the things i love is is uh, mando's growth as a character mm-hmm. yeah so yeah. you know this you know the first season uh for those of us who so I've seen all the Star Wars movies, but I've read none of the expanded universe stuff. Like I don't know that much about Star Wars, even being a fan of of eh, even being a consumer of the the movies and co- Star Wars content. Uh, so like I don't know that much about Mandalorians. Uh, I watch Rebels a little bit with my kids, so I'm, I'm a little, little bit aware of Mandalorians. But um, so I just kind of took what the show what the show showed me about Mandalorians. This is the way. You never take your helmet off. Season one. This is, this is the way, right? This is what Mandalorians do. It's not a creed. It's a code. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I kind of took that from season one. Okay, that's, that's um, who Mando is. He's duty-bound. So he, sure, he's a bounty hunter trying to make a living, but he's also duty-bound. He lives by a code. And when hey, he was- a brief, brief asterisk. How funny is it in season two when we find out that he's like a part of this, a remnant of this fanatical sect and the whole t- not right. take your helmet off thing. That's like, what I'm that saying. So- <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That. That's what I'm getting to, Kirk. Is, okay, is that season one, you're like, oh, okay, this is what it means to be a Mandalorian. Like you live by this code. And that's why that like that sets up all of season two, which is like he has been tasked with rich, like with a religious zeal. He's a religious zealot. He doesn't even and know it either, which is great. Yeah, he doesn't know it. Like it's like so. The, like the last thing before, like all the Mandalorians are basically killed, um, is like uh, take this this Grogu, take this baby Yoda, um, and re- take him to his people. Mm-hmm. That's his job. So see, that's what season two is. Take re- return him to his people. And so with fanatical zeal, he does this. This guy who all he'd done is like 
uh, work for the weekend. Not really, because he doesn't have fun. He, like he works to like upgrade his armor and like whatever. Um, but in season two, he grows as a character to be like, okay, this is my this is my purpose because I'm a religious zealot. And then like, I'm blown away by him like looking for other. He's told that other Mandalorians exist and that they will help him. And what he finds out is that there aren't there aren't like zealot Mandalorians, that there are people who wear the armor. And so first he meets Timothy Oliphant, who is just wearing the armor because like it protects him and it allows him to be sheriff of this town. Which was so awesome as right. a guest star. I was like, yes. It yes. was perfect. <laughs> and then I think it's two episodes later, um, we find out there are these other Mandalorians who are like, oh boy, this guy, like, you, you find out that, like, he's the extremist, like, he, like, they're like, oh, wow, you're one of that sect, where, they like, he, he's, like, up, visibly upset that they take off their help, Mandalorian helmets, it's like, you're not the real deal, so well, we see is, these, this, yeah, this is why I was so confused for a season, like, I've watched, like, no, they take off their helmets all the time, like, what's going on here, right, so it left me in that suspension, like, that would be really lousy writing, and I was just, it always confused me the first season, right, but then when they did that, I'm like, Oh, that's that was really cool, and the fact that they get they get you that way, right? We know yeah. if you love this show, this if you love Star Wars as much, you're gonna know this, and it's gonna bug the heck out of you for an entire season, and we're gonna leave you hanging. And they did it so well. And and where like he doesn't like these side missions, he's basically in season one and even two, whether it's killing the crate dragon or yeah. or um, freeing these basically slave people with Ahsoka, like. He does those things very reluctantly. He grows as a character to the point with the Bill Burr episode um, where he removes his helmet. And there's this great scene where I think uh, it was, uh, I heard John Podhoritz talk about it recently on the recent Glop, where he has this magnificent scene as an actor where he acts like a person who doesn't know what to do with his face. Right. <laughs> Like, and he's like visibly uncomfortable, like not knowing how to, how to like live without this, this shield, right. without this helmet covering him. And, hmm. and, and so that's amazing. Um, and, uh, and then just the, the so I'm just, I'm, I'm in awe at, at uh, John Favreau's storytelling ability in doing that. And I think it leads up to that final episode where Mando has established himself as a tough guy. Like that he is a tough, he's not only, he's got a suit that makes him bulletproof. He's got all kinds of, cool things like this thing on his arm that can like shoot missiles out basically and destroy anything and he it takes all of his being to kill one of these dark troopers mm -hmm. and there's like a whole platoon of them and right. we think that they're gone as they disappear into space but then like in the back of your head you're like well but we saw them fly down to kidnap grogu right so they're not like they're coming back right and so what do you need you need luke like that yeah. was that was like the only thing, is Luke. Did the one of the thoughts that popped in my mind when you saw the dark troopers was Cylons, right? Because you know, yes. Kara Thrace plays uh, Bo Katan in this, or uh, Katie Sackhoff plays plays Bo Katan. She did the voices of Bo Katan in Rebels and Clone Wars. She actually plays the character in the show, and I just couldn't help see a little nod towards Cylons for her. Uh, in the Dark Troopers, it was just a little, remind me little, what Cylons are Battle so, from Battlestar Galactica. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You know the 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 silver thing with the red eyes that go back and forth. Yes. It just it kind of made me think of that a bit from the new Battlestar, at least. And I I, I just thought that was a neat, neat little nod. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it it definitely made me think of that. And Bo Katan was one of the Mandalorians who wasn't an extremist. 
Correct. Okay. Yeah. She she used to lead the Mandalorians. She was on the hunt for the for the dark saber, right? So yeah. 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 And even that, where like you, you know that she wants it, but like uh there's this this like uh the uh, uh Moff Gideon is trying to set up and successfully so like the only way for her to get it from Mando is for her to defeat right. him in combat. He can't just yeah. give it to her, which I thought was an interesting twist that like I don't know any of that lore, but I was like, Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Christopher, I'm think? glad uh, I'm glad you brought up um uh, the the observation that when in season one, when he is diligently, uh, we might say fanatically devoted to the way, mm-hmm. um, uh, he, he's not actually yet a fully developed um, mm-hmm. kind of, a, I guess, I guess um, fully developed spiritual person, I guess we might say. I mean, looking at it from a Christian sense, he thinks he is. Yeah. Um, and uh, it reminds me of a comment, a famous comment, David Foster Wallace, um, once commented on the religious uh, on the religious impulse in humans um, from "This Is Water" uh, about choosing what you worship. Um, he said famously, "In the day to day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship." Okay. Uh, and um, and uh, he is um, is is not actually kind of loving his fellow man or or, or involved in anything transcendental. He's just kind of faithfully try, like living a shadow existence um, um, of a dead sect, <laughs> no longer remembering why, right? Um, but what shapes him um, out of nowhere is accidental fatherhood. <laughs> and I love this. So the Mandalorian armorer says, uh, you are a clan of two. <laughs> um, and uh, fatherhood, um, fatherhood is uh, really a remarkable gift to, to most men. It, um, it shapes a man in many in many men's situations. It turns you from a from a boy into a man, uh, and and some of kind of the dysfunction that we're seeing right now um, with kind of perpetual adolescence has to do with um, delayed fatherhood um, mm-hmm. amongst uh, younger men, and uh, it's touching to watch this reluctant guardian mm. um, first grow fiercely light, loyal um, to Grogu and ultimately um, sacrificially loyal. Right, and this is the ultimate poignant, heartbreaking truth of parenthood. You have succeeded as a father if you can let the child go, mm-hmm. knowing that it's the best thing for them. Right, uh, and it breaks your yeah. heart, and yet it is you. You have done your job if you can do yeah. that. And um, what so what makes I think that scene so affecting at the end is you can see the inner turmoil in Mando's kind of in his body language in his face. And he knows I gotta I gotta give him to Luke. I gotta right. give him to Luke. Um I, I love the adoption parallels because there's so much Christian there. Yeah. Um uh we we are we are adopted sons of the father. Um and of course we celebrated just celebrated the epiphany in which the Gentiles are grafted into the, the original Davidic tree. And we had no business, it's by grace. Um, and so uh, adoption is, is a lovely Christian concept. And this is a, this is a story about adoption. Mm-hmm. But, but whereas we mostly focus when we, when we see happy stories of adoption on how adoption shapes the child and changes the child's life, the loveliness here is adoption uh, as well, even more so changes the father's life, right? It changes mm-hmm. Mando's life. Uh, in a beautiful way and that um this is where you talk when you talk about masterful storytelling this is masterful storytelling um Mm -hmm. the evolution in his character where at Mm -hmm. the end 
um, we see this painful and ultimately right moment where he has to- Which is impressive, which is impressive for a character who says very little and never really shows his face, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's essentially a walking mannequin. To to imbue that much meaning into that Mm -hmm. is, is, it shows you that if they had only hired these guys to do the new trilogy, maybe things would have been better off. Oh, Oh, Harrison, all (laughs) those families. Right? But it's like, yeah, I mean, like, I, I got to be quick because I do have to get going here. Yep. Um, yep. But um, the other really cool thing was, I think it took, it was, you see, the other problem with like, for example, I, I enjoyed The Force Awakens, but um, mm-hmm. the problem was it didn't seem to understand the cultural impact of the loss of the empire or the messiness of all that. Yeah. This show does that so well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the emperor is dead, but there's going to, so what's happening? Pockets are rising up to gain power, and the whole system doesn't fall apart. It just it 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 it, it can't. It's not possible, right? So it's it's a bit of all that over there is just um, and and how some of these people like wasn't it really cool in the that scene in in the uh, when they're uh, in the last episode where they're getting the clone doctor in the sh- in the transportation shuttle, and he's like. I, I was on that Death Star or whatever, you know, what about those casualties, right? So the moral messiness of war, right? It was, it understood that these are not just pop actions that, but that actions have consequences, which is I think a very important storytelling technique as well. And how those those actions can often solidify people in an ideology, right? So that, that trooper was like really, you know, I'm about the empire because of what the rebels did to my, to those contractors and stuff who are on the Death Star, who died as collateral damage. Those are really important moral conversations that often don't happen in the Star Wars universe because it's just so often blasters going, lightsabers going. And finally to like the obscurity of the Jedi, it shows you still like, no matter how central they are to the general story, they're obscure, they're, the knowledge of them is still so obscure because it's been really 50 years at this point by the time they've, so, what is a Jedi, right? That people have force powers. It's a very dark time, like religiously for the galaxy because those who can wield the force seem to be no one. They take that really seriously. And I think they execute it so well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I also thought uh, the force awakens was, was a lot of fun and compelling. Yeah. And, yeah. And it brought the joy back to star Wars in a way that, that there wasn't a lot of fun in the, in the prequels. Uh, but, but it did kind of destroy the happy ending of return of the Jedi in that like, yeah. we see this like fully formed first order that is a rival to the new Republic right. um, where the, Ma- the Mandalorian, the TV show uh, explores like who fills that vacuum of power. So we kind of see the in-between rather than just having this like empire 2.0. Yeah. And, and this is, this is going into Star Wars nerd culture too much probably, but, but there was in the nineties, uh, um, a trilogy, the Thrawn trilogy. Have you read it, Harrison? I've read one of them. I okay. think. Uh, oh man, Thrawn. Uh, to write yeah. that when JJ Abrams made the, made the decision to, to say that's not Canon uh, I mean, th- it was already ready for him. This whole idea of um, a galaxy in which the 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 kind of the urban core, Coruscant, has been freed, uh, but yet there are the, all these bits uh, um, of the Empire that are floating out there. Yeah, it's not a neat and tidy end. So, have you, have you watched Rebels? Yep. Okay, yeah, but that's I mean, that's the beautiful thing about Rebels, right? Is how Thrawn, like yes. Thrawn, was the most compelling bad guy had seen since Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he was a truly. He, because a, a truly evil character is someone who knows they're doing evil and chooses it 
mm. and is rational about it. they're not crazy or anything how often people are portrayed as doing evil today he was a man of culture yeah uh, he's calculating right and uh, I mean, and that's going to be definitely a big story arc for the Ahsoka show, which I'm super excited about, right? Yes. Uh, because yeah, Thrawn is a compelling character. And, and and I'm grateful that someone like Dave Filoni said, okay, well, let's let it, actually, yeah, let's use him. Yeah. And, they, and, they captured, yeah? and they captured the magic of like the leitmotif. Like, like he has his yeah. own theme. So like when you see him, you hear this like eerie Thrawn theme, which is awesome. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so good. It's so good, man. Oh. I do have to go though. Yeah. yeah. Shall we end in prayer? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with, and your, with spirit. your spirit. Eternal Father, at the baptism of Jesus, you revealed him to be your son, and your Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Grant that we, who are born again by water and the Spirit, may be faithfully, may be faithful as your adopted children through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and Amen. reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Oh God, by the leading of the star, you manifested your only son to the peoples of the earth. Lead us who know you now by faith to your presence, where we may see your glory face to face. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord. And by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. Of this night. And for the love of your only son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. 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 Thanks, Harrison. Thank Look you, Harrison. Thanks, no problem. Next uh, week, Christopher. Next week. Mm -hmm.